0: You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler.
1: I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Stand episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino.
2: I'm Christina Lomangino.
1: And today we take our stand with episode four, The House of the Dead.
2: Written by Jill Killington, Owen King, and Ben Cavill. And directed by Bridget Cole and Danielle Crudy. IMDb is giving this a 7.7, up from a 6.9 last episode, and Rotten Tomatoes a 56%, also up. But the audience is down again to a 21%.
1: It's worth noting that this is an early audience score. It's only been a day since it was released. And the fact that it's a streaming service means that other people are taking their time to watch it. So I anticipate that to go up dramatically.
2: That's true, but I'm just judging based on the fluctuation. So last week was around the same short time frame, and they were at a 33, which is down to a 21 now. I'm a little confused about this. It seems the critics were higher on the last episode and a little frustrated with this one, whereas I feel the reverse. I like this episode much more than the last one. I was starting to have some mounting concerns in three, but four... I think they actually are managing to achieve that ensemble piece that they were talking about last time. To me, Blank Page felt a little bit scattered. We were still doing introductions, but we were trying to bring people back to Boulder and the present day stuff didn't have a lot of weight for me. Here, the flashbacks seem to be doing what I was hoping they would, which is building the tension and then it pays off in present day Boulder. We see how the characters are coming together and forming a plan. And we even get how they're rebuilding society, which... We thought we couldn't do since that was so boring in the 94 series. I think they're managing to do a great job with it here.
1: I agree with you. There's two main reasons why we like it. Last episode, we were hoping to get the Glenn moments where he's actually giving some knowledge about how to deal with the people. And we got that. Also, you were really hoping to get more of the background, albeit not enough, I feel, but it was still really well done, of Nick and Tom. Uh, Those scenes were great. I saw on Twitter, and again, this is a few people saying that they thought this one was more boring because specifically they said the scenes of having a town meeting. I wish I could talk to them because it's not about the town meeting. It's about the whole idea of creating a new society and how much goes into it and creating a new structure, taking five people that didn't ask to be in charge, that don't necessarily feel they're good enough to be in charge, which, by the way, those are the best people to be in charge, juxtaposed to a mob of people, and I just mean mob, a big amount of people who are filled with questions, who have lost everything, and obviously they, they don't believe in this group yet. They haven't proved themselves. And in this rendition, I mean... That one guy was pretty angry already. <laughs> it was like, dude, relax. I mean, come on. I,
2: I, Impening. He was also angry always in the novels. We're going to talk about him. Actually, I think I brought him up last episode as the person who was sort of the town drunk Okay. and causing problems. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, his name was Charlie Impening last time. I think they changed it to Pole Impening. I'm not sure because I didn't read these Twitter messages, but I wonder if this is people just having that knee-jerk reaction because the scenes from the novel were considered pretty boring. The reason for this is a lot of that information was coming from Franny's diary, where she was just straight taking meeting minutes. What happened? Who said what? And that's how you were getting the information relayed to you. Uh It was a little bit long and tedious. The 94 didn't really know how to handle it, so they took a lot out, and they just stuck with the highlights of the first meeting, singing the Star-Spangled Banner, which I think we kind of did a rendition of here. Let's take the big moments some of the more important talks about how they would reform. And we'll try to give them to you quickly, but I also think they did a great job of bringing forth characters we hadn't gotten enough of yet, particularly Larry, to see how he was transforming and contributing to society. This is not something we did in past versions where Larry has to step up because Stu doesn't know how to handle the crowd. Now, I think this is great, him taking on more, Franny getting a little bit more in the meetings. One of the problems there is that Stu, who got all of these things Mm -hmm. in the books and the 94. He was sort of the hero. And yes, that was an issue we needed to adjust a bit. Unfortunately, now he's not really getting much at all. We're sort of giving all of those characteristics away to other people. So I wonder how much you're still connected to and rooting for Stu, if that's as important of a figure here.
1: I see your concern, but I like this because... The reality of it is, and I'm looking at Stephen King's book as trying to look at a more realistic, even though there's a devil and there's a, a big hand. I'm looking at this as specifically with Stephen King and our social habits as humans. I think that that's something he's really good at. So in reality, there wouldn't be a, a Superman. Stu wouldn't be the, the the guy who has it all. And I love the fact that we're seeing him struggle and it's the, the power of the team that Mother Abigail has put together that helps everyone through. Larry's good at that. Let him get the ball rolling, and then Stu can take over there because I think Stu's strength, or uh, as it unfolds, will be his ability to touch people.
2: His goodness.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I feel we will get more of that um, as this show moves on.
2: And I don't have a problem with it, like I said, because I know, Stu, I have that knowledge already coming into this. I actually thought they did a great job with all of those characters. Let me give you what one of the critics said. Vulture commented, Here's where the structure of this version seems to be actively working against its success. What should be a tense scene between Harold and Franny has an entirely different energy because of what viewers know about where Harold will go in Boulder. They're pulling the narrative back from its urgency. And then another critic said, caring for people we barely know is difficult enough, but there hasn't even been enough information in this iteration to understand why three people, the spies, would put their lives unquestioningly on the line for the Boulder Free Zone. So I disagree with the first part. I was feeling that way of us not getting these payoffs with the deeper character work due to this timeline jumping around until this version and specifically Harold and Franny they finally did not only the five months before, but the three months before, Mm -hmm. the two months before what we were asking for, a little bit of the journey so that when it hits by the end of the episode with Harold's big scene with Nadine, it really hits for me. Now, what they didn't do that with were the spies. So I can see that. We have absolutely no introduction to Judge Ferris here. Mm. If you hadn't seen the previous versions, you have no idea who this person is. Why are they immediately agreeing to go on this dangerous and suicidal mission
1: It's immediate to us because we're missing a lot of context.
2: Yeah. We don't even know what
1: kind of person she is.
2: You understand it for Tom. And thank goodness because they did a second scene in this episode to build him up. Otherwise, I don't know if you would have felt that. But we just met Dana Jurgens this time. Yeah. And we haven't met the judge at all. So, yeah, the timeline thing still has problems in other areas. For our main characters, they're managing to flesh it out a bit more. But they're still hitting some stumbling blocks in choppiness, I think.
1: I agree with you. And I have to stop saying that, but I agree with you (laughs) often. (laughs) And we've said this many times. The time jump. And everyone, I think, agrees with us. The time jumps, as we've said in the past, are ruining a lot of things. And we have rewritten it (laughs) on the fly, I think, episode two. Uh, But jokes aside, these scenes, the scene with Tom and Nick, and the scenes with Harold and Franny and Stu and Glenn didn't hold much weight because we know they're okay. Because we've seen them in the Mm. future. Mm -hmm. They're lacking that impact. But I think that they're aware of that. But what bothers me is, scene for scene, this show is really well done. If it was just reordered. Every scene, and I believe this is what I was thinking when I graded last week. And I was saying, I agree with everything that you're saying and all the, the problems it's having. But after every episode, I'm like, wow, I really enjoyed that. Until I sit on it for a while and pick it apart. Scene for scene, they're doing so well. I'm in love with Tom. I love his character. He's so endearing. I love when he's talking on screen. I want to hang out with him. And I actually, in the little bits that we saw him, was really enjoying Teddy. So the impact of Teddy being shot, I think, paid off. Mm -hmm. We did not see that coming.
2: Yeah, so as we mentioned, they finally did this jump to three months earlier thing, which I think if they'd been doing that the first couple episodes as well they maybe would have hit some more on these characters that we wanted to see over the span of time Mm. because Teddy is someone we have been seeing over the span of many episodes, kind of sprinkled here and there. They also did what you were suggesting they do, and I couldn't believe it about other characters continuing to find Harold's sign and that piecing them together. These episodes felt a little bit separate from the first few. I'm thinking the next couple are going to feel a little bit separate as the timeline starts to condense. So it's just weird how it's all playing out, but I can see it coming together here. I enjoy the themes that they're starting to weave in as a whole. Mm. Clearly, this one was a lot more about community with the larger picture of the conflict starting to emerge at last. Yes, we have this good versus evil. We haven't seen Vegas, but we know we're probably going there soon. In the meantime, we also have humanity's internal struggle against itself, trying to organize this new society. And yes, we have good intentions. We're trying to be fair and equal. But Franny's bookend narrations, starting and ending this episode, speaking Mm -hmm. through her diary, hint at the darkness they're struggling with, the bad things they know they're going to have to do because they want to accomplish a greater good in the end, which is a dangerous slope. And they talk about that a lot in the books. Okay, well, now we're manipulating the town meetings. We're keeping secrets from other people. Are we just starting all the old shit back up again? How do we know our purpose is greater? After all, we don't even really know what's going on in Vegas. We're surmising. We're being told bits and pieces from Mother Abigail. And that's the whole point of sending the spies this time. Because if they're going to start to sacrifice things and potentially make difficult decisions, they have to know for sure Mm. what they're up against. Is it really that bad? what they're fighting over there? And is there a real threat to their society that they have to work against? So I think that's good. It also brings me to something I want to mention about Franny's Diary. Now, the title of this episode is House of the Dead.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about that.
2: I'm, I'm really confused. And we mentioned it last time because last week was called Blank Page, apparently. When we recorded, it was called Blank Pages.
1: Yeah, they did change it. And I'm going back and forth. Do we change ours or just stick with...
2: I think just leave it. It's not yeah. that big of a deal.
1: Well, after maybe a couple of days, they changed it to blank page, which doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is they should have changed the episode title completely of this episode and blank pages.
2: They should have been swapped mm-hmm. because we were saying last time, okay, you get Mother Abigail talking to Nick with the blank page quote, clearly where they pulled the title from. But that could have just as easily been a quote in this episode. In fact, maybe it was initially. There's a lot more of the blank page thing happening here with Franny filling in the diary, talking about starting up a new civilization and keeping a record of that. And last week, House of the Dead made a lot more sense because that was Flag coming to Nadine and literally writing the words with the planchette on the ground. It said, we're in the House of the Dead, Nadine. Words from the book in the 94 series that had nothing whatsoever to do with this episode.
1: This is the first episode we didn't get flag, so it made no sense. Yes, we started to see flags seeds that he planted, doing its work, but not in the House of the Dead. He was doing it in Boulder, Colorado. So it does. It just does. There's nothing that. There's makes no sense.
2: more cleanup crew here with the burial committee. Yep. House of the Dead doesn't seem to fit in.
1: No more cleanup. Instead. We get Boulder Baywatch, baby. The
2: City Watch. I can't (laughs) wait to talk about it. Before we get to that, let's give our music notes. There was a couple of great ones. We got Don't Take Your Guns to Town, Johnny Cash. I Mm. love this. In the beginning as the characters are getting ready for the meeting. Of course, America the Beautiful, the Larry Electric guitar rendition, playing as the power turns on in Boulder. And Gimme a Little Sign by Brenton Woods, playing during the end credits. Next, let's talk New Faces and Places. Starting with Julie Laurie in the 94 version played by Shawnee Smith and this time Catherine McNamara, described in the books as an unstable, sex-crazed teenager. She's supposed to be 17 years old then, who lives through the pandemic. She meets Nick in a deserted store, seduces him, and attempts to convince him to leave Tom behind. She then ridicules Tom and frightens him. All the same here, except there's also a scene where she convinces him not to take the Pepto-Bismol Tom has been... Nick has been struggling to find him because he ate those bad apples i talked about last time Mm -hmm. and they finally get the medicine she tells tom it's poison and of course he's not going to take it after that and it's the first clue to nick what is the matter with this person
1: do you like this rendition of her
2: i do in our closer look later on i'm going to talk a little more about julie from the books There's only some slight changes. And of course, we didn't see much of her then or now, but I think it's just enough to give you an idea of what's going on with this person, Mm. why she is so dangerous to this duo that's forming, making their way against all odds. They don't need a stumbling block like this. They have enough stuff that they need to deal with. And how you can have a character who is not flag level evil, not even Lloyd Henried but still as much of a danger to the new kind of society they're trying to build back up.
1: Uh, yeah, I'd say her biggest weakness is naivety and lack of empathy.
2: Yes, she is clearly very self-centered in the books. That's why I can't wait to talk about that in the closer look. But I think that they do paint a good picture here. Well,
1: I think it provided a great platform to endear us more to Tom, and to show us more of how good of a person Nick is and how unwavering his personality is. We saw it once already with Flag, give him the bird, but now we see a different kind of temptation, something that's probably really difficult to fight, especially at this point for him, uh, with no one around. and he he's like get out of here that's the, you know
2: well yeah and they do actually have sex in the earlier versions before oh. he gets to know what kind of person she is but that's also great because they're painting nick at this point in the book as a bit of a religious figure maybe even oh. a jesus like figure
1: not getting that in the show which i don't mind so
2: we need to bring a little humanity to him and yeah. they're demonstrating how he has human physical needs like anybody else and it's not until he starts talking to her that he's realizing what a problem this is. And later when they have that confrontation, he says to her, we don't need you. And that that really kind of cracks her veneer. There is a version of it here. And it exemplifies how Tom is also going to help Nick, not just the other way around. Because yeah. Nick doesn't hear when she tries to apologize. She makes that little effort. And I think Tom notices by something in her voice That it is sincere. Is it because she's just lonely? Perhaps. But Tom might have given her a shot to explain herself. Nick doesn't get that. So he just pulls him away and they continue along.
1: I think we get that effect later on with what the group is doing. And we'll go into this deeper. Behind Mother Abigail's back. Mm -hmm. Because that is not in the books. Yep. And I think they're taking all of those bits and pieces from the book that shows the human qualities of our group. How imperfect they are and I think they're bundling all, it all up into something big, which is doing something behind her back.
2: Yeah, and shifting them around a little bit. Absolutely. Well, another great character who we get little time with but makes a big impact is Dana Jurgens. In the 94, played by Kelly Overby, and here by Natalie Martinez. In the books, Dana is a PT instructor from Ohio, Outside the city, her party is set upon by Doc and Verge, former members of an army detachment sent to suppress the media and shoot looters. In the aftermath of Captain Trips, they have formed a violent gang maintaining what they call the zoo, eight captive women that they use as sex slaves who they keep sedated with pills. The women eventually stage a revolt, faking taking their pills that morning so that they'll be alert enough to fight back when the chance comes later on. And that's exemplified here when Dana starts planning with the other woman. I believe she's meant to be Susan, which is kind of unfortunate because she does play a role and we lose Susan by the end of this episode. So I guess not here. But they are plotting when they see that metal bar yeah, that they're going to try to pick up that Dana eventually uses against Garvey. So we don't have Doc and Verge. It's just one person here, Garvey, mm. played by Angus Sampson, who is running the zoo.
1: Gotcha, yeah. That was a pretty good scene. I see what they did. They shortened it. They didn't have enough time to introduce the entirety of what was really going on. So they have one villain, and they kind of simplify his villainousness. Um, but Dana Jurgens, I'm intrigued to learn more about her. Natalie Martinez, the one who plays her. I already like her because I've, I watched um, Kingdom, and she's a major role in that series. That's on Netflix right now. I feel like MMA It's a pretty good show, and I like her style. I like how strong of a character she always plays. So when I saw her first, really briefly, they showed her during the meeting, during the town hall meeting, and then we saw the flashback, and I was like, oh, good, she's going to be a bigger role. I already know the kind of character she's going to be just because of the type of character Natalie plays, and I'm intrigued to see what they do with her. But I do have to say, I made a mistake. I always do this, at least once every show we cover. I spelled her name wrong in every way possible on Twitter.
2: Well, no, you <laughs> spelled it the way Dana's very often spelled, D-A-N-A. It's just a little different here that they add a Y.
1: Yeah, and I spelled Juergens with, with an I.
2: Oh, I missed that one entirely. Maybe I should have spell-checked as I normally do, but you guys get the idea. You know <laughs> who this is. Jason, you've also seen the 94, so you know that Dana's going to be a character we see again. I think that's pretty clear from the episode as she is one of the spies. And I'm excited to talk about that, which characters we have choosing which spies to go out later. Speaking of, next up, we have Judge Ferris slash Harris, because quite different in the last version. In the 94, played by Ossie Davis, he was a man in his late 70s that joined Larry's party in Illinois. He was referred to as the judge, And Ferris was a sharp, well-spoken, educated, and insightful man who served as a circuit court judge in the 1950s, but had since retired. This is important because in this version, played by Gabrielle Rose, as we mentioned, you don't really get to see much of the judge. Um, I'm not sure why we don't get an introduction to her, if maybe there was and that was a scene cut out at some point, because it is a little bizarre, even though we only meet Dana right here in this episode. We get somewhat of a picture of her before they ask her to be a spy, the judge we don't. Yeah, And since they did do this big change from the judge in the books in the 94, there's not really a lot to go on here. I'll, I'll say that I'm hoping we get some in the future. The biggest point to the judge, though, was in the 94, he was one of the first to see Larry's true potential and his leadership capabilities. He was the one to recommend him to stew for the committee when they decided they couldn't put Harold on. As much as he had things that he could bring to the committee, nobody trusted him. They didn't want him there. They needed a fifth person. And they weren't getting these names directly from Mother Abigail. This is a big point we'll talk about in this episode. She was staying very much out of the town affairs. Okay, you start up a committee, have some meetings, turn the power back on if you want to. That's not really the important stuff. The important stuff are the messages I'm getting from God and your bigger purpose. But if you want to do that in the meantime, I'm not going to interfere. That's fine. So they selected the committee. They did all of this stuff in the books in the 94. Um, We see Mother Abigail much more involved here. She's picking the people. But anyhow, last time it was the judge to step up for Larry and say, there's something in him. You guys need to give him a shot. And in fact, they all wound up liking him. And so he joined.
1: In this iteration, Mother Abigail is just waiting at this point. She's waiting for God to tell her what to do next. And I'm not sure if I like that. It feels weak.
2: Yeah, and she was waiting too the last time around because she knew there was some bigger purpose for them after they had all gotten safely here to Boulder, gathered up. She was also having some sidebar issues with her own faith and feeling that she had sinned through pride and kind of taking on too much of this belief in herself, greeting everybody as they came in. Mother Abigail, you dreamed about me. Getting a little carried away with herself, perhaps, and she had to kind of atone for that. Mm. But as we mentioned, you're not getting that. You're not getting the backstory of Mother Abigail when she was younger and all the struggles she had in her lifetime. And here, what seems like a small change, that Hemingford Home becomes a retirement home where she is found. Shorthand, right? To me, is another huge difference. Because you're missing that whole piece of her home in Nebraska and what she went through preparing for people to come and and getting all of the first dreamers meet her and gather up. So it's another element they've taken off of Mother Abigail. At this point, I know they were trying not to make her the trope she was in the 94 with Ruby D. And in the novel, I completely understand that. But I don't feel they've done a good job of humanizing her here either. So to me, they've just stripped all aspects of her and she almost could not be in these episodes and I don't know what a difference it would make. They could be referring to Mother Abigail. She's a figurehead um, and I'm a little bit disappointed at what feels to me like dropping the ball on this character. Anyhow lastly we mentioned we got our introduction to Impening. I don't know how much more we're going to see of him played here by Bruce Blaine. He was a minor character in the books who lived in Boulder before the Superflu, worked on a custodial crew at an IBM plant and was pessimistic about the Free Zone's chances come winter, and especially in their fight against Flag. So he was constantly causing problems, disagreeing, standing up at meetings, until finally he wound up leaving the Boulder Free Zone. I don't know where they're going to go with him, this time around, he might just be that same kind of wrench that's thrown into things occasionally.
1: Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen.
2: Next we'll get into our crow's-eye view, but before we do, let's take a brief pause to tell you about our Patreon.
1: I'm sure by now you guys have all heard of Patreon and you've heard us talk about it. In a nutshell, it's a way for creators such as ourselves who don't have a backing to let our listeners, our clatchers, help us to continue to provide this content. It's a lot of work, it's a big commitment, and there's really no money behind it. So the best way to do it is to provide you guys with even more content that you love, and in return you guys give us the cost of a coffee to help us Uh, to continue to do this. And you you say to yourself, well, what is $3 going to do to help you guys? Well, $3 times the masses will help us create our own (laughs) Denver, Colorado. We need to keep the power on people.
2: Well, and that's just tier one. There are three different tiers, each of which get you varying levels of content. Tier one will get you coffee break episodes where we talk about what else we're watching and reading, short reviews, things that we're not discussing over here on these channels. And they're very interactive. We have a lot of fun. Tier two are bonus episodes where we pick a topic, we dive deep. Everything from the history of Christmas to a review of 2020 to your favorite heroes and villains in pop culture.
1: And the best segment, Jason's Horrible Jokes, where I tell you the best jokes ever invented.
2: We're not going to linger too long on that. The last (laughs) tier is the movie tier. And that's the only place where you can hear us at least at present reviewing movies. A wide variety of genres. We've definitely covered some Stephen King, if you're interested in things like that. It Chapter 1 and 2, Gerald's Game, The Shining. That's definitely the tier for you. And with each step up, you also get all of the content from the step before it. So if you're on the highest, the movie tier, you will also get the coffee breaks and the bonus episodes. For every level, you are entered each month for a chance to win in a raffle for one free item of CKC gear. There's a lot of benefits, so why don't you head on over to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on our Patreon tab, and check out what's going on.
1: We've been doing this for six years now, and with your support, we can continue to do this for six more
2: years. Back to the House of the Dead. We're going to start off our plot by talking about the flashbacks in Boulder. Because as we mentioned, this episode is bookended by Franny's diary. It's almost a love letter to her unborn child. This plays a much bigger role in the books that I am not going to get into here. It is an element, of course, of Franny starting to record everything they've been through. She starts it as they leave their journey, writing down things to remember, things she's missing from the past that no longer exist, so that her child will know about it someday. She also talks an awful lot about Harold in there, which leads to some shenanigans. But here, it's just kind of a history she's leaving behind. She explains how the world has come to this place. If you're reading this, that means you're alive. This is how you got here. What kinds of lines had to be crossed? We're doing our best to rebuild, starting humanity again, like rebooting a computer. That's the plan anyway. And that takes us into this preparation as the committee gets ready for the first big town hall meeting of the Boulder Free Zone. In this sort of pre-meeting meeting, meeting, Stu has been selected to speak by the others, but he's very reluctant to do so. He thinks, why not Glenn? Glenn's got a lot to say. But he thinks people will want to know things will be okay, so the messenger is more important than the words. People trust Stu, essentially. The real thing is, what should they tell them, though? How much information should they give about things like Hectrogon? Stu thinks they have a right to know the truth, but Franny thinks they don't really know what the truth is. All we know is what he told us. Well, we know
1: he didn't put spikes through his own goddamn hands and feet.
2: I'm not saying he's lying. I mean, we actually can't rule that out for one. All we've got is the deluded ravings of a brutalized and dying man. And okay, let's say that we panic everybody. We tell them that the the boogeyman from their nightmares is real and he's on the other side of those mountains. And then it turns out that this kid just had schizophrenia or or, or he was driven to hallucinations. Uh, uh,
1: I'm sorry. Am I the only person here that saw this guy's goddamn eyes turn black? Well, no, I saw it. Yep. But this yeah. is
2: what I'm talking about. We don't we don't actually know what we saw.
0: No, no, she's right. We risk a lot by inferring more than we know. All right,
2: so
1: what do you want me to do? You want me to lie?
2: So like a true politician, Glenn deduces, "Well, Stu, you don't lie. You just don't say any more than you know.
1: This is a difficult predicament. I try to put myself into our characters in these types of scenes. How would I react? And I don't have an answer for that. I don't know what's the best way to go about this. Do you make your first meeting... (laughs) By telling the truth that, uh, well, that person was from Vegas, which is the devil's playground. And the devil is out there himself, who is creating an army, and he's out to get Mother Abigail and us. Then what would I say? I'd say, I know, right? I thought I was safe when I got here too, but it looks like we're fucked.
2: <laughs> it's a really great way to start off our first meeting, huh? Well, the issue is most people are also having both of these dreams. They know about Flag. They know he's out there. What is the point of saying Heck Drogon was crucified and then he got possessed? He told Mother Abigail he was going to blow her house down. How does that help them? It doesn't. So I kind of agree with what they're saying here. We'll give them a little bit, but why panic them?
1: Yeah, and the reality is that's all they know is what Heck told them. Mm -hmm. Well, Heck slash flag. And that's why the preceding scenes are them uh, going behind Mother Abigail's back to get spies to learn more. They had to do this,
2: right? They had to know. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back to Boulder later. But next, we're going to talk about flashbacks from two months earlier. First, with Harold and Franny. Fran wakes up from another nightmare to find Harold is awake and watching. Being typical, creepy Harold. (laughs) He can't sleep because all he ever thinks about is her. He finally professes his love for her, lunges in and tries to kiss her. But Franny pushes him away. He's telling her, this is all how it's supposed to be. It was fated for them. Doesn't she understand that? It's an extension of the speech he gave her earlier when they were leaving Ogunquit. Harold thinks he has the opportunity to be different now. Um, Surely this all happened to make him a prince, right? He can be the hero at the end of the world. He can get the girl he never could in real life. Franny kind of sets the first problem into that plan here by rejecting him, but we're going to see the second bigger thing is what happens to him at the zoo in the next scene. Uh, But you can tell he's he's very hurt when she says she will never feel those things for him
1: the first thing he says is it's stew isn't it
2: oh boy it's like dude Harold. what are you
1: in 5th grade and you're jealous at your girlfriend <sighs>
2: Have you not realized this has been going on since way before Stu came into the picture? This
1: kid has problems. He's a creep. And you know what? I would enjoy punching him in the face.
2: And she really needs to say it because she's trying to tell him no. He's not hearing it. He's not picking up on any of these signs. She has to be firm and just lay it out directly. Harold, this is never happening. You need to just get over it and move on. Of course, he can't. And I think (laughs) Franny has to be a little concerned here because as of right now, Harold is the only other person... That she's God. They've only encountered one other person being Stu who they left. So she has to play this a little bit carefully.
1: You know what would have been funny? If he made his move before they saw Stu or anyone else alive and she says no. And then he goes, so wait. So even even if I am the last man on, on earth, I'm still not going to That might have
2: <laughs> been the end of Harold. Really? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, he, he angrily goes to sleep here. And meanwhile, we see that on the road, Stu and Glenn pass another of his signs on the side, written on a truck. They think they must be close and can probably catch up with them soon. They're getting to know the way Harold thinks, how he plans things. It's not just Franny who's picked up on a lot about Harold's personality. Well, the next day, Harold and Franny come to a blockade in the middle of the highway, a big trailer stopping their progress. A man unexpectedly emerges from the truck, gun drawn. Meet Garvey. He handcuffs the two and says he's going to show them a demonstration, taking the women he's been keeping out of the back of the trailer. Garvey now goes into a speech, reflecting that society is back to nature now, with the alphas like him on top. Things went south before when people thought they should all be equal, giving a chance to beta snowflakes like Harold. Okay, it's a little funny when he calls Harold a beta snowflake. (laughs) Until he starts moving into this whole thing that he's going to give Harold a chance to compete. Yeah. Egging him into, punching him, fighting him. He's going to just prove his dominance in the most horrible way possible. And then he's going to sexually assault Franny in front of him, proving you can't do a thing about this. Yeah. This is the most horrific type of situation. We saw the possibility for something like this when Larry and Rita were escaping New York City. And a man offered him a million dollars. But they didn't take that to its logical end point of where it could go, which is with this zoo situation. And I'm happy that they decided to bring it back from the books because it is a very real threat about other people that are out there, the evil that could exist in humanity. And if there weren't rules and societies and laws and everything they're trying to start up in Boulder, what would happen with people like Garvey? So you get this drawn-out scene of Harold really being emasculated, having the shit kicked out of him, you do see in the background while they're busy the other two women silently plotting to steal this crowbar. And as Garvey heads over towards Fran, we see that Glenn and Stu are pulling up to the blockade. They take cover behind the car, and the two women start to attack. Unfortunately, Garvey turns around and immediately shoots one that we think might have been Susan.
1: That was an intense action scene. I think it was very well done. That was very impactful when she got shot right away.
2: No time to even see it coming. No. I mean, just...
1: Well, he didn't even mean to shoot it. it. That's because Dana grabbed her his arm.
2: It was a reflex. But thankfully, Dana then picks up that bar and hits Garvey from behind on the head. And she doesn't stop there. She does the thing that we all say when we're watching horror movies. You don't hit him once. He's going to get back up. You, you keep, keep hitting going. him. And of course, given everything she's been through.
1: Yeah, you can imagine if the two seconds that Franny was there and he was o- already going to assault her sexually... Imagine what he's been doing with these women.
2: Unfortunately, King goes into graphic descriptions about this in the novel. Everything the women have suffered through, from the details of the sexual assault to the pills they're keeping them addicted to. And it's not just pills to sedate them. It's a whole variety. Pills to give them energy to wake up in the morning so that they can be part of this sex slave situation. Pills for pain, then pills to help them sleep later. So they're explaining that they get to a point where they're so zoned out and addicted They stop caring about escaping. All they want is the next pill. Mm -hmm. It's a smart idea, smart in a disgusting and evil way, because there's only a couple of men and many women. How are they going to keep control over them? Well, this is exactly how they do it. But, of course, you're getting enough here to understand what they must have been through and the strength it must have taken because, for all Dana knows, she could die here in this moment. If this doesn't go the right way, I mean, he's already just killed Sue very quickly. Yeah. Harold seems to be pretty useless.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, he's on the ground crying. They've got like Fran
2: captive. Um, we do see Glenn and Stu then start to come up. Seemingly, they would have come to help, but Dana's taken care of it. So later on, they're all camping out for the night. Stu is explaining why him and Glenn came after them to see if they wanted to go with them to Boulder and explaining the shared dreams. Harold being Harold <laughs> derides the suggestion of prophecy occurring he wants nothing to do with any of this but i like that glenn really understands who harold is and manages to persuade him by understanding harold too is a quote man of science
1: <laughs> he's endearing to a quality that he can use to manipulate him
2: he's a smart man glenn
1: he's very smart and i love that he's smoking pot the whole time he,
2: they they really have <laughs> just like in the extreme turned him into a stoner in this version which he was not previously
1: but he never acts like a stoner there, there's a few different types of weed smokers. There's a type that smoke and lean back on the couch and just, eh, give me some chips and pizza. And then there's a the kind that like to do it when they exercise or when they're thinking or Stephen King, when they're about to start writing their novel or continue to write their novel.
2: Well, Glenn is clearly an intellectual and he yeah. loves nothing more than expanding his mind and batting these ideas around. And yeah. I don't think he's just manipulating Harold. I think he does believe... He sees those qualities in him. He's a very logical, rational person. These are the skills. These are the abilities. And he has been in the position that Harold's been in. He says, I've made those mistakes. The reason we have spent our whole lives, so now he's bringing him in, right? There's a connection, me and you. The reason we've spent our whole lives railing against these things, religion, God, magic, Mm -hmm. wasn't because it wasn't true, but because there was no proof now they have the opportunity to find, to find out. They can go on this journey. The answer may or may not be yes, it's happening. But either way, he says, don't you kind of want to know? Let's see how far down the rabbit hole goes.
1: There's a lot of quotable moments with Glenn in this episode. I like the position they've put him in. And if I was Stu, I probably would be leaning on Glenn often. I'd also be smoking some of his pot. <laughs>
2: They managed to convince Harold, but we have another key moment later on. Franny's awakened by another dream, seemingly a bad one. She goes out to talk to Stu and asks him if he's having those other dreams, you know, the ones with the dark man. Mm. He is. She also shares with him that she's pregnant. She's not really keeping it a secret. You know, Stu already knows, but says he wasn't going to blow up her spot. He didn't know if she wanted to share it with people. But she hadn't told anyone yet, just her father. So confirmation there that that scene did occur from the books. Again, we won't get into that. I'm still kind of hoping we get a little flashback because it wasn't just Franny telling her father she was pregnant. It was a scene with her mother that culminated in a lot of explanation of Franny's history. But I do enjoy this bonding between her and Stu. The first conversation not being solely built around sexual attraction.
1: Yeah, that would have sucked. <clears throat> I like that. It, it wouldn't make sense for those characters. And I like the way they did. They had to truncate a whole relationship building process that we all go through, never mind in a pandemic. And they truncate it into one sit down with them. And obviously, it's not like from this to we're in love, but it gives us enough of an idea to understand and agree that it would make sense that they would wind up with each other.
2: Well, you see these qualities, they're always talking about for Stu in the books. Why do people like him so much? He's a great listener. He's really hearing what Franny has to say. And you mm. can kind of imagine after months on the road with Harold <laughs> just mm. spouting nonsense, not really hearing or seeing her at all, having yeah. no one to talk to, not sharing this huge news that she's terrified about. Sure. Now you get into a conversation with someone like Stu who gets it and she allows herself to be vulnerable. She admits she's really scared and Stu is there for her. So I think it's a good first step in showing their relationship.
1: She seems very young to me. And I said this to you while we were talking. In those scenes, she looked like she was 16, 17. I know the actress isn't, but...
2: Which she is supposed to be in the books. I think just finishing high school and going into college. Mm. I don't know, the 94 Molly Ringwald seemed a little older to me.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 like 20s.
2: Yeah, and, you know, she's got some immaturities that they talk about in the books, but she's also got a high degree of intelligence and a lot of strength and these things that make her feel older than 17. I'm not sure exactly what it's supposed to be here. They don't tell us, and I think... Maybe intentionally keeping it ambiguous, but you can feel the difference between her and James Marsden.
1: This show is keeping everyone's age ambiguous, I- I- including Mother Abigail.
2: Well, most especially <laughs> yes. Mother Abigail.
1: But my problem with Molly Ringwald, and this is just my issue, is that all I kept saying was Breakfast Club.
2: Yeah, when I, I know. I looked at her. Pretty in pink, sweet 16. I think she picked up some of the nuances of Franny's character from the book's Yes, she was still underwritten. She didn't have enough to do. She was criticized for being a little too emotional, but I think you got the idea that she was the moral compass of the group. That was her purpose. She had a really firm sense of things. Mm-hmm. She was a hope for the future. She had belief in that.
1: A hope for the future that's have so many meanings because she's also carrying the future in her.
2: Yes, not just because she was pregnant critically right. because we don't want to stick a woman in that role alone, no, but no. The ideas of a relationship with Stu. Mm. Of building a home together. Starting a community in Boulder. She was always looking forward to what could be possible. And so Franny gave you hope.
1: Yeah. And in that meeting we're going to go to about Tom. She says it's already four to one. Even if I say no about Tom going.
2: Yes. I love that scene. And I love the scene they showed us of her with Nangin last time. Talking about the schools and starting things up. Because prior to that it's not that Odessa Young is a bad actress, but I was getting a lot of depression and negativity and hopelessness from her and not a lot of this strength and hope for the future I'm talking about of Franny's character previous. I was a little nervous. What is going to be the role for Franny? Are we going to leave her out again? But I'm starting to kind of pick up on a bit of that. Me
1: too. And in retrospect, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, we met her when she's burying her father.
2: Of course. You know? Of course. And
1: she's stuck with this fucking guy. Yeah. <laughs> and she doesn't know anyone else I mean, alive. it's no
2: surprise that as soon as other people come into the picture besides Harold, she starts She to, gets better. Yeah. Like, okay, uh, I, I gotcha. But anyway, let's talk about our other key flashback from three months earlier with Nick and Tom.
1: Oh, uh, sp- my favorite.
2: We spoke a little that they go into the store to look for some supplies. Tom says, should have just asked mother for directions, but I guess it doesn't work that way calling out exactly what you were highlighting last time. Why do those fighting on the good side never get enough help? (laughs) That's right. We talked about Nick meeting Julie Laurie, who is dressed in some kind of pink princess ball gown here.
1: She's a child, man.
2: Yeah. They do start kissing, even though they don't have sex in this version, but they're interrupted by Tom, who starts reciting his speech for her. Love it. Telling her that Nick can write, but he can't read. So... Up until this point, he hadn't known what Nick's name was. And that was such a big deal in the books. They didn't know until they met Ralph eventually, after all of this, when they're on their way to Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And Ralph takes them in his truck, and finally he learns his name is Nick. But what a thing here that they added that Julie didn't have in the last representations. She's ridiculing him by calling him a thiebe, which is very mean. But further, she's trying to get him to say... Nick's name is Amari Tard.
1: Yeah. It pisses me off.
2: It's horrible, but done in the perfect way that by giving her only a few lines, you do understand who Julie is.
1: It's playground bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, we need to hate her. I don't like her. Yep. I I just don't like her.
2: (laughs) Well, so thankfully they do ditch Julie pretty quickly. She picks up a shotgun and starts shooting, but they manage to make it outside. We're once reaching safety. Nick and Tom hug, pausing for a moment and see a sign for Hemingford home. <laughs> the, the mother drop of all bizarre Easter eggs. I don't even want to pretend like I understand what's happening here, that Stephen King's cameo is on a poster for the retirement home.
1: retirement home. I think it's funny.
2: Oh, I think it's funny. It's like Oh, it's a little cringy. Wait, why? Because it's it's funny. First of all, visually it looked weird.
1: Uh they photoshopped that. They plopped them in there.
2: But like badly, right?
1: Well, what was what's crazy to me is it looks like a scary movie poster where something doesn't fit. Yeah. It's not right. And so you're looking at that and you're thinking he looks like a twisted man in there, who's about but to it's kill everybody. To be this <laughs> nice retirement home, yeah. like
2: what? So that, and then I was really thinking King was a character with a decent sized, small role the first time around. He played Teddy Wizak. I thought we were actually going to get King. So if this is the big cameo, I'm a I'm a little let down. Who knows? But I guess I mean I feel like we've seen all of Hemingford Home. Everybody there is seemingly dead besides Mother Abigail. I don't think we're going to get him. I think he's
1: over it now, to be honest with you. He's he older. And it, he does do a lot with the show, uh, with the last episode, right? Yeah. So I think he's over cameos. But I'm still going to keep an eye out on every dead body to see if...
2: Maybe you recognize him? Yeah. Well, that takes me to the bigger problem and I don't want to spend too much time on this because we did talk about it already that Nick and Tom get to Hemingford home where Abigail is sitting alone among the dead just waiting, wondering if she'll make it to tomorrow. It's impactful and sad but there was so very much amazing stuff happening here. I talked about the struggle that she went through that both exemplified that yes, she was chosen by God. He was speaking to her. He did tell her these people are going to be coming. But she wasn't just a relig- religious figure or a trope. She still had to get up and walk however many miles to the neighbor's farm, fight her arthritis, fight the tiredness. No way she was going to make it. In the so book. she could, yeah, yeah, get these chickens and kill them and drag them all the way back home, have an encounter with flag, pluck them all, cook them all up, bake her own bread. Because she says it a lot. I'm 106 years old, 108 years old, whatever she is. And I still make my own bread. And get dinner ready so that she would have this emblematic welcome when Nick and Tom and the others got there for the first time. Mm -hmm. She talks about trying to keep the farm in her home all of these years, how difficult it was, how it's still going to be sad for her to leave when they go to Boulder. She's got to leave all of that behind. That and so very much more that for me set the perfect stage of who Mother Abigail was. This scene is almost an insult to that in my mind.
1: I think you're right, but it's quickly overshadowed by Nick and Tom and how enthusiastic they are mm. when they meet her, mm-hmm. and that's what I remember. I remember what Tom says to her. I remember how happy he is, and for some reason, and it could be just my, you know, how I, I like to see the better of everything. That's what I'm clat, um, clatching onto. <laughs> clatching clatchers. Sorry. That's what I'm grasping onto. Um.
2: <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's not even about Mother Abigail there, is the thing. It's more about Nick and Tom yes. and, and such a joyous occasion, this meeting her finally, and they waited so long. Uh, I, I think you had room while she was sitting there waiting alone, wondering.
1: Not just talking to a dead woman.
2: Uh, to have a minute-long flashback about life before.
1: Maybe she was sleeping on that chair. And she was remembering what she was going through.
2: Yeah, We see her talking to the dead people. Why not talking to them? Maybe she's going a little crazy being here all alone. That's fine. Maybe she's talking to God. There's so many ways we could have gotten a little more information about mother here.
1: I agree with you. I think there, there's something lacking there. It's difficult to put your finger on it. But the, yeah, there's something lacking.
2: Because to me, if this is all I'm seeing this time around, yeah. I have no reason to follow this woman. If I'm any one of these people, that's the problem. I know enough about flag mm-hmm. to understand how he gets people to his side, to be charmed right. by him, to be afraid of him.
1: But the devil was always that way. He always had the flash. Correct. And the, and there was no flash with. But God. we need the
2: counterpoint now, right?
1: I always say that when I'm reading the Bible. Growing up, I was, you know, when you're young and a kid, you're like, but the devil has all these things that he's <laughs> doing. What is God doing?
2: <laughs> I don't mean flash and pomp and circumstance. I just mean. There was a sense around Mother Abigail of coming home. Mm. It wasn't even being a prophet. It wasn't even being the ear to God because there was so much she didn't know. She was going to welcome them. She was going to give them a home-cooked meal and a place to sleep for the night. And we're together now. Things will be okay.
1: This needs to be Game of Thrones. I know I said this a hundred times already, but I'm going to say it one more time. They could have Game of Thrones the shit out of this and made it four, five the seasons parallels
2: on. are here. <laughs> yeah. They certainly are. But I said I wasn't going to harp, so let's move to our last segment of present-day Boulder. We're coming back to the major characters actually getting dressed and ready for this town hall meeting. We get a couple of key notes here, including Larry pouring all of his pills out. Big step for Larry. And Harold practicing smiling yet again. He's prepping for some big moment tonight. The community packs into the meeting hall, and Stu introduces himself to the crowd, who is immediately edgy. Good old Impening calls out. Wanting to know about Heck Drogan and when the power will be back on. Stu fumbles and things begin to really ramp up. It's not looking great. Until Franny pointedly wonders, hmm, who has experience working a crowd? (laughs) I love that for her. I love that for Larry. No hesitation. Big smile on his face. He knows he can do this. Which is such a highlight for Larry. I really love it. He steps right up to the mic. And he's brilliant. First, he has everyone who's been working at the power station stand up for a round of applause. Let's recognize the hard work everyone here has been doing. Let's honor you for that. Smart. Then the burial committee, the body crew, who's been doing the hardest job. And finally, the teachers, Nadine and Sophia Jacobs. He finishes with more good news, saying the power crew is inviting them all back Friday night for the turning on, and they cheer. Once in a positive mood, he turns the proceedings back over to Stu.
1: Very well done. It shows the strength of the group, as I said before. And as someone who had to talk on a stage with a bunch of college students. It's hard. And you know everything you're saying. They're like, look at this tool. (laughs) Um, I know what he was going through. And I wish I had a Larry there to warm up the crowd, you know?
2: I found myself in a Larry type of situation once. Presenting at my first conference with Mm. a panel of other people I worked with other creative arts therapists, and we all had these little things prepared, and other people were supposed to go before me and spoke a little, but we were having a stew-type situation. Not that bad, just some stumbling and um, difficulty and losing the crowd of people, and so they sort of threw it over to me real fast, and I didn't know that was coming, and I realized they think I'm Larry. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing here, but it was my first time ever trying to do that. I was so nervous. My heart was racing. My mouth went dry. But I found myself telling jokes and people were laughing, even though I didn't think it was funny. And then getting into the information and I don't know, five minutes into it, it got a lot easier. I guess there's been some history leading up to me essentially talking for a living between being a professor and now doing this podcast. But Larry does it so brilliantly. And by the time Stu gets comfortable, I actually think his speech here is pretty good. He keeps it simple. He starts by saying that, heck, ran into the wrong guy out there. They all know who he's talking about. He doesn't have to say it. But the situation also highlights what they have here in Boulder, why Mother Abigail brought them all together to keep them safe in these uncertain times. Oh, boy, if I have to hear uncertain times one more time, (laughs) that really struck home. He goes on to ask for volunteers to start a city watch that could patrol the streets, thinking the burial committee, who's almost finished now, could transition over to help. What a great way of keeping them pulled in to yet another difficult job. In the books, they had decided they need some kind of law and order. Nick especially had been thinking about this, and they kind of elected Stu to be their first sheriff in addition to everything else. But this is why I say we kind of keep taking away a lot of those elements from Stu in the books. I enjoy that he gives that to these people who have worked so hard. We trust you enough to be kind of an authority and help out. And finally, he states that Mother asked the five people on the stage here tonight to take the lead in getting things running in Boulder. He's going to call for a vote. Do you guys agree? Do you want us to be on this committee? At present, they've been running on an ad hoc committee, meaning this is the group until we take the vote and figure out who the people are going to be. But before they can vote, Harold stands up.
1: Mr. Chairman? Yes? Harold? Hi. I think since you're all doing such a fantastic job, I'd like to put a motion on the floor to accept the slate of ad hoc committee members in toto as the permanent committee, if they'll serve, that is.
2: I just love some of the things they're including from the original. This ridiculous phrasing that Harold uses in the book and the miniseries to say, in toto. Who says in toto? <laughs> I've never heard that before. I mean, it's fitting, but it just perfectly exemplifies who Harold is, but also their reactions. They thought about all of this to the point that in the 94, they have Glenn having somebody else stand up to nominate kind of
1: He knew the psychology of the group, yeah.
2: And yet nobody thought to do what Harold thought of here. Let's not go through all the potential problems. Let's have somebody suggest that we just take all of them. Yeah, there's something
1: smart, albeit a little sadistic, throughout this whole show, the way he's thinking. But the way he's doing things and the way he's thinking, he's using it for selfish reasons. If he wasn't this way, I think he would have been...
2: How helpful could he have been?
1: Yeah, if he was using that same brain power. Mm Mm-hmm. He seems to be a few steps ahead,
2: always knowing what to do next. And he's trying to show them that. You didn't ask me to be on this committee where I should have been. Look at all the intelligence and skills you've Everyone's just
1: here because of what I wrote. away. Yeah.
2: Plus Harold has some ulterior motives here that we're not going to talk about until later. But the point is it works. The crowd agrees, erupting into thunderous cheers and ending the meeting on a good note. Later that night, Nadine surprises Harold as he returns home telling him they have a lot to talk about. She shows him her stone and says Flag sent her to find Harold. He believes we can do great things together. Inside, by the fire, she seduces him, admitting she knows he's a virgin and she is too, saving herself for Flag. But, you know, other than that one little thing, (laughs) she can make his dreams come true.
1: Yeah, we knew that that would be her go-to, right? Seduce him. Knowing... The type of person Harold is, knowing what he's yearning for, that's what you go for.
2: Mm -hmm. He's surprised, though, by her plan that she brings up for them to leave Boulder. And she follows this by saying they need to complete their task first to kill Stu, Mother Abigail, and her five chosen. Then they'll go to Flag. She is his queen, and Harold can be his prince.
1: I don't know about you, but this scene wasn't very convincing to me. Although I felt like it still was enough for Harold to be convinced. But I I just didn't feel the sexiness behind her. It felt contrived. It felt obvious. You could tell it's not what she wanted to do. But I guess I could be persuaded that it was enough for Harold, at least.
2: Yeah, I mean, we complained about a couple of characters leading up to this. Primarily some of our female characters. We mentioned earlier, I think they're doing more with Franny. That's really starting to go somewhere. We got an excellent introduction on the bad side to Julie this time and on the good side to Dana. But they definitely are still lacking with Nadine. And I think none of these iterations could really figure out how to tackle Nadine. In the 94, they rolled Rita's character in with her. And Nadine just got all of that. And I think it did give her a little more introductory time, some more time to (laughs) learn about her relationship with Larry, I can see why the show did that. And while it was fun to get Rita as a character this time around, she was confused. They didn't know how to handle her. And all it ended up doing was taking away time to get to know Nadine that I think we desperately needed. You don't know the good parts about her. She immediately feels all evil. You don't really get an idea of how conflicted she is about Flagg. Of this task to go to Harold that she really doesn't want to do, but is doing it because Flagg told her to do it. And how they both kind of wound up in a situation after a lot of time, which we don't feel here because of the jumps, of using up all their chances in Boulder. So Nadine really wanted to be with Larry throughout this journey and thought Larry was her last hope that maybe they could come over to the good side together and if she could just be with him and they could be a family and she could have Joe, maybe things would be all right. And when he says no because he started up a new life here now and he wanted her earlier and she rejected him, so that's done with now, she knows she doesn't really have anything left and then she goes to Harold. We've missed so much of that progression and nothing about Amber Heard outside of this because I don't want to get into that, but purely from an acting standpoint, I don't think she's doing a great job with this either. I know a lot of it's writing and time, but as we mentioned, while there were some criticisms of Laura San Giacomo in the 94, I think she was doing a lot with her physical performance and portrayal that I'm not getting this time around for Nadine either. I agree. Uh, But as with anything else, I think it is managing to develop Harold's character more. So that's the good part to what we're getting here. Of course, they end this conversation with her telling him they just have to figure out how to kill them. And that's why Flag chose Harold. Now, something interesting here, and I don't know if I'm pulling at things that don't exist, But this phraseology of Harold could be a prince in Vegas. I don't believe it's something they ever used in the book or the former version. It was he could be someone, he could be important. Mm -hmm. But they're calling out that word prince an awful lot. And I thought back, wait a second, didn't we hear that word a bunch in the books? Early on, when Stu is being held in the CDC, Project Blue is referring to him as prince. Hmm. So there's a clip from the books with Colonel Dietz, who is one of the doctor characters that we don't get here. We got Dr. Ellis. Mm -hmm. And he's writing down a report that says, Colonel Dietz, Atlanta facility, code PB2. This is report 16, subject file, Project Blue, subfile, Princess Prince. This report file and subfile are top secret, classification 223, eyes only. Prince still tests virus clean. He has one abnormality. He dreams a great deal more than average, almost all night, every night. And they keep referring to the two survivors they have there, which is Stu and Eva Hodges, the little girl mm-hmm. child that we don't really get a lot of from Ralph Hodges, as being prince and prince, that, princess and prince. That's how they're referred to. Okay. I wouldn't make much of that except there are other parallels between Harold and Stu as we go along through the books, most of which we haven't gotten to yet at this point in the story. They're not two characters that you would think to put up against each other to look at the differences. But I think that is going to go somewhere later on, provided they take some of that material and continue using it. So I just want to keep that as a maybe. Moving on, the next day, Stu hands out uniforms to the new City Watch. He asks that they keep a lookout for stray lights when the power goes back on, turning them off as they come to them so they don't overload the grid. And this was a big point in the books that the first time they tried to go on with the power Everything immediately blew out because they had forgotten that everything would have still been on Mm. when the power shut off. So completely overloaded and they had to assemble a team to go out there and start just shutting everything off, (laughs) turning off committee. So nice nod to that. It's not necessarily Sheriff Stu this time around, but he is kind of still in charge and telling people what to do. He's giving out the uniforms. Um, Interestingly, they don't have guns, but he's not going to stop them from acquiring their own guns. Yeah, I agree with that. They were pretty clear they didn't want them to have that in the books. They didn't want to keep escalating things where if the cops carried guns, maybe the criminals would carry guns. And then they needed jail to lock people up. And so I think they're kind of tiptoeing around that. But the key note here is that we get more of Teddy and Harold continuing to pal around. Teddy calling him Hawk, them having some kind of casual interactions. We mentioned that They just continue to exemplify Teddy as this harmless, fun-loving kind of everyman. He shows us a little bit inside of what Harold's dealing with, but also the point of view of somebody who still sees Harold as okay. They're friends, and he doesn't have this weird viewpoint on him. (laughs) Harold is starting to freak out until he is overcome by something.
1: Yeah, I I think I heard a bird crow crow that settled his mind and made him put his hand in his pocket and, again, planted a seed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The juxtaposition between Harold and Teddy, it's so funny. You know, Teddy's on the prowl for girls. But Always. in an innocent, like a, you know, non-threatening way. Yep. And then he comes back and he says, you know, we're Boulder Watch, which is funny, <laughs> you know.
2: I really like him. I think Eon Bailey has done a lot to endear you to this character. Yes, and yeah, more of that active intervention on Flagg's part to get Harold falling in line. In another committee meeting, we get this other big point we've been talking about. The group discussing how Mother only sees bits and pieces of the future, so they'll have to send spies to Vegas to find out what's really going on. They proposed three, but even though Stu volunteers, they all agree it can't be one of the five committee members. They're not only crucial to running Boulder, but given their visibility, their absence would be noted. Mm -hmm. In addition to Stu's concerns about sending someone else into danger, you know, he wants to be the one, Glenn notes that it's all in direct violation of mother's instructions. And surprisingly enough, Nick is very willing to go along with this. He says, if we're not prepared to lead, then why are we here? Again, last time I'm thinking we didn't get enough of what's happening with Nick And I was a little disappointed because Nick is the one who proposes Tom Cullen in the books. Uh. And that was really key because they had formed this incredibly tight bond of friendship. The rest of the committee was shocked that Nick would do that. Upset with him, even. It made it all the more impactful, though, because he delineates how Tom can do a lot more. He's capable of a lot more than what they're all seeing. Yes, it'll be good because Flag won't suspect Tom, but he also has skills. So, you know, it's Glenn to put that forth here, even though Nick backs it, saying he was hoping for another suggestion, but they all agree, including Fran, that Tom loves this place and mother maybe more than anyone else. Stu offering, well, he survived this long on his own. Who are they to say what he's capable of? And he should be the one to make the decision. Nick adding, Tom will surprise you.
1: Nick's facial expressions tell it all really once again well done you can see the pain you can see that Nick knows this needs to be done but he's going to miss his friend
2: let's skip forward to the results of each one of these as we go through because we see them eventually go to talk to Tom and lay out what's going on here he does readily agree actually they all do And they have Tom repeat the instructions. It's sort of like giving him a new script, the way he's had the one for when he introduces himself to people.
1: Absolutely. Tom, can you say that back to us? Go and watch. Then come back and tell. Tell what?
0: How many people, how many guns, did I see the Batman from your dreams? It's really good, Tom. You come across their people in Las Vegas when you first arrive. They ask you how you got there. What do you tell them? Rode my bike from my hometown, May, Oklahoma, boomer suitor, after everyone died. <laughs> and uh, Tom, how do you know when it's time to come back? I'll see the, the full moon. Ow! M O O N, and that spells full. Then what? Then I'll start walking back in the direction the sun comes up. When it comes up, I'll. Find a shady spot to rest while I wait for it to go back down again. Sleep in the light, walk in the night. And if the dark man sends people after you? Hide. And if they find
1: you? If it was more than one person, run. If it was one person, kill.
2: Now, this is a big diversion. Again, we won't go deep into this, but it's important to note that in the books, they hypnotize Tom. And people were very upset with that, feeling like they took away his agency and they were almost brainwashing him. They would have to guide him because he couldn't do it on his own. I I don't think that's the portrayal I got from the books. They went into a deep description of how Tom had kind of been doing this all of his life, almost a form of self-hypnosis, that when he had difficulty with some of these logic jumps he needed to make, he would kind of go inside of himself take a moment, reflect, and come to the conclusion. This is how he realized that Nick had hearing loss. So they're basically activating something that Tom already has to utilize it to give him a plan so he can stay safe when he goes over there. And and that's basically what they're trying to do here. You know, They're telling him, go watch and tell how many people you see, how many guns. You'll know when it's time to come back when you see the full moon. Sleep in the light, walk in the night. If they send men after him, well, if it's more than one person, run. If it's one, kill him. These are all the same instructions they gave him under hypnosis in the books. So I agree that I like making him more of an active player and having more agency, but I just think maybe there's something being missed in the content from the books. Um, Perhaps it wasn't delineated quite clearly enough.
1: Well, I haven't read the books, and I know I've I've watched... TV shows and movies that are based on books, and I know the feeling when you've read something and there's so much missing. But I'll tell you this, as someone who hasn't, I think this was well done, considering yeah. how they have to do everything. I absolutely love Tom. The way he reacts, you can see, you know, when they say, where are you from, and he says the... uh I think it's like the football team anthem. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's that jubilee. But then when they start talking about what do you do, you can see the fear in his eyes and the way the group is reacting. They all are—they're all of their hearts are broken.
2: They're hating this
1: that they have to do this. Nick's face. Oh my god. Mm. Um, This is killing Nick. Absolutely.
2: And I agree with you. I'm I'm actually not saying that I wish they would have done it like the books. I'm really happy that they updated this and gave it a refresh. I just think the the criticisms that are laid upon how it was done in the books are maybe a little overzealous and missing the intention behind it, which I don't think was to take away Tom's agency. I think it was to get to a strength he already had, not necessarily to brainwash him. I believe Tom still agreed to this mission then and now because he loves his friends. He loves Boulder. He loves Mother Abigail. I think it's all the same stuff. So I enjoy that this adaptation found the heart of that and maybe a way to show people it more clearly yeah. instead of having it feel like they're forcing Tom into it. But all of these same things, how heartbroken they all are, Franny saying she wishes she could say no but wants to be together on this. They should all vote yes. And particularly their goodbye to Tom. Mm-hmm.
1: That could buy. First of all, the location they did it in was very beautiful. And the camera work from looks like a drone or something. Tom and Nick wearing the same coat.
2: I <laughs> love that so much. Tom saying, Wish my main man Nick could come. Yeah. A lot of the same phraseology from before, you know, it's my main man Nick. Did you did you know that Stu? Did you know Nick was my main man? <laughs>
1: It's so well done, and <laughs> the kind of bike they give him, and as he starts riding away... I know, what away, is that thing? <laughs> there's something so innocent about Tom, I just...
2: It's the purity of his intentions, like we said. The reasons to do this are to preserve all of the important things they're trying to rebuild in this society. That's what Tom represents, and the group knows it.
1: Yeah, and I wish him the best of luck, and I hope if someone does mess with him, he just kicks their ass. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, then the other two spies, we have Larry suggesting Judge Harris. You know, while she's older, she might be less suspected as a likely spy. The harshness of how they've had to come to some of these conclusions is evident in the few lines they throw in here. You know, they say if something should happen to her, it's not someone who has 50-plus years in front of them. They're really having to consider these things, which is terrible. Uh, but they run through all of the reasons why, you know, in the books, the judge is saying... Yes, I'll be slow. Yes, my arthritis will pain me. But I'll also be smart and clever. And I'll observe everything. And you get it. You get why they're choosing each one of them. And they're all saying, I'm honored to accept this. Of course, I'll do this. It's the person who goes to them. And in the books, everyone who makes the recommendation has to be the one to go to the spy and ask them. And they're having so much difficulty. But the spy themselves immediately says, listen, I know what you're trying to say. And don't worry, I'm in. Mm. I want to do this. Finally, we get Franny suggesting Dana Jurgens. I like getting her reaction to this first. (laughs) Okay, so you're telling me I have to get around all these stalled cars on this long road from here to Vegas, through the mountains, past border guards that they inevitably have set up, Mm -hmm. infiltrate Vegas without being noticed or killed, and then return to tell you what I saw? Sure, I'll do it.
1: Look, you're not going to get me to do it. If I was there at Boulder, I'll tell you I don't have the guts to do it. I would say, you know what? I'll do everything in my power to help here in Boulder, but I don't have that in me. Mm-hmm. That's the truth.
2: It's it's a pretty shitty job, <laughs> uh, but necessary. And you get the, I think, real torn feeling they're all having when we later flash to Nick talking to Mother Abigail and her saying, I know this must be frustrating, Nick. We just got to wait for God to tell us what to do and... I think it's really best if we take no action for now. There's too many unknowns, and Nick's kind of like, okay, Uh
0: uh-huh.
2: But on to our last scene, as the community gathers once more for the turning-on ceremony, Stu and Franny announce the countdown, and the power comes back on in town. They celebrate while on the roof, Larry plays his electric guitar.
1: Very well done. Very apropos to what's going on right now in America, and it kind of makes sense because the electricity's on, so he's going to play an electric guitar... On a roof, very old school American, like a guy on a roof playing a guitar, you know?
2: And give Larry another moment to shine. Why not? He's the musician, right?
1: Larry has quickly become one of my favorite characters, for sure.
2: I'm hoping you're starting to feel for him the way we did in the books. It's like when you think someone is bad or could go bad, but then you're given their struggle and their hard work to come over to the other side. You almost appreciate them that much more.
1: Oh, I forgot to ask you, what were those
2: pills? Remember the big duffel that he
1: Yeah, there was pills in that too?
2: Everything to save. Part of the, the big element of the drugs in there were pills. Oh, okay. When he first opened it up, he pulled out a big bag of pills. I thought it was just coke. No.
1: So he's looking at himself like like anything, there's always that little voice, like, you can just take this, feel good. I mean, you've been feeling like shit for a while here and there's so much stress on you.
2: And he's been doing it. He's been doing it since he left New York.
1: It doesn't look like he's been doing it here, though.
2: I think they're trying to show you he has been all the way through, but he's slowly been shedding parts of his old identity, and this is maybe one of the last things. And he's ready to put the past behind him.
1: Look, Larry, Glenn's got some pot. (laughs) You're fine. Just go for that. You're fine.
2: You don't need it. Um, And elsewhere, we see that Harold and Nadine have gone to scout out the ski lodge where... Yeah, Harold's read up on avalanche management and controlled explosives. They find boxes of explosives in storage. They're getting them together when Nadine is discovered by Teddy. She's really bad at coming up with an explanation on the spot. I mean, she literally just says nothing, stands there looking guilty. There's about 10 different things she could have said to Teddy to feasibly get him off the trail because... He's already not suspecting anything. He, he's saying, oh, you must be here to pick up school stuff. Like, why would she be here to pick up school shit? But it would have been so easy. When Harold emerges, she starts getting more nervous. Of course, it probably would have been easy to just say they're fooling around, which Teddy would have been upset by. But again, I think it would have sent him away uh, feeling hurt but not questioning things. Instead, she just freaks out, raises the gun, and fires at him.
1: She should have known the power she had in this conversation because right away, you can tell he's smitten. So he's not paying mm-hmm. attention to any particulars. Mm-hmm. And then after he got out what he wanted to say in his smitten way, he's like, so, uh, oh, yeah, what are you doing here? And she could have played it off. You're right. But story-wise, they needed to show this. They needed to put forth already what they're willing to do for Flag and what she's willing to do because she wasn't, even because flag even said you don't have to do the killing
2: let harold do it and yeah i mean harold had the chance to to really turn it back around when he came out because he's on this same turning back off committee he could have said yeah we stopped because we saw the lights and we're we're turning things off and i was gonna swing nadine back to pick up some stuff when we're done and i'm really sorry man but like you know we kind of started something i know you liked her but it just happened
1: we found these explosives If it goes to that, right? Yeah, I thought we
2: should turn him into Stu.
1: Yeah, maybe he doesn't even notice it. But if he does, then you say that. Um, And it's a box. It's a truck full. So they could have hidden some and then just gave the rest to Stu. Absolutely. And and saved face. But it's panic. The last words that Teddy says, which just puts the cap on it, how much I love Teddy, is he tells Harold to run. He He still still thinks. Yeah.
2: And this is what's so sad is that Harold is shocked, doesn't for a minute think this is going to come to killing Teddy. Doesn't suspect that's what Nadine is about to do. Yeah. You can see how surprised he is when she fires at him. Um, This is going to change things. And I don't know how does Harold take it? How does he respond to Nadine? How is it possibly okay after this? Because I think he genuinely liked Teddy.
1: I think of anybody. That's probably the only person he genuinely liked.
2: And surely people will notice when Teddy's not there tomorrow, right?
1: Absolutely. I wonder how they're going to play this off.
2: Oh, but what an ending. I mean, we kind of go back to Owen Teague being one of my favorite performances in this show as Harold.
1: Come to think of it, the fact that Harold is well aware because he's been part of the body crew where the bodies are buried, he could, in the middle of the night, just bring them to a burial site.
2: Oh, he can, and it it might take a day or two, but I think somebody will realize where Teddy go.
1: I don't know. Yeah, Where did yeah. Teddy go?
2: I've been looking for him. Maybe he went to Vegas. That's well, a pretty, he's not a part of that. It's a pretty easy way if you're Harold. Oh, okay. To pass that off.
1: Mm.
2: You don't think he could have gone to Vegas, do you? You know, like maybe. Oh, what a way to end things. Well, any final thoughts on this episode before we go over to our dream reading?
1: I teared up a few times. <laughs> um, the Tom scenes, I teared up, yeah. and <laughs> there was a little tear, and I was like, oh. When Teddy said to Harold, run.
2: It's the first real impactful loss I think we've experienced in this adaptation.
1: Yes. We didn't see it coming.
2: Yeah. And the parts where it's different from any of the other iterations, because Teddy wasn't really a character, they're shining brilliantly when they can just add something new that's going to enhance the story. And I loved this foil for Harold. I thought it was great.
1: Some final thoughts. One, I I think I forgot to say this last week. I love Tom's Dolly Parton shirt. (laughs) Yeah. I absolutely love it.
2: Is he always wearing it?
1: So far, every scene. Okay. Lastly, I'm not sure. I haven't come to a conclusion, but I'm not sure if I'm loving the fact that they're going behind Mother Abigail's back.
2: I'm not sure if I'm loving the fact that she is so involved with the town affairs in this version.
1: I feel like she's not.
2: It, it, they're suggesting it, but we haven't seen it. Again, it's, it's very confused. And that's, that's culminating to be the weakest point of the story for me this time around, Mother Abigail.
1: And then lastly, I've been saying after every episode, it ends with Flag. This one did not end with Flag necessarily, but it ended with Evil. But it did. Yeah.
2: Yeah. His orders. So on a scale of one to ten dreams, what do you give episode four, The House of the Dead?
1: I'm still sticking around the same area that I've been for every episode. I'm going to move up for this one. I'm going to go 8.4.
2: Well, I had gradually been going down with one being my favorite and still my favorite and a 9.5. Two, I gave a 9. Three, I gave an 8. I'm going to go back up to a 9.2. Ooh,
1: that's a big jump.
2: I really liked this a lot more. And instead of my fears getting bigger, they were kind of elate. This time around, I I like now that it's starting to progress and maybe move closer to present day. Mm. Getting our cast together, I thought it was good.
1: And now we move on to our Clatchers segment. Speaking of Clatchers, Clatchers, if you could be so kind as to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, it's not for us, it's about other people who aren't aware of the CKC. Let them know who we are, what is to be expected if they listen to this podcast so that hopefully we can take our stand soon and get our Mother Abigail army together. So just go to iTunes and leave a rating and review that would help us tremendously. And tell your friends and your family about us. Download it for your parents if they uh, don't know how to use iTunes.
2: Hey, I facilitated my parents getting a CBS All Access subscription just so they could watch this show. CBS isn't paying us a dime to tell you (laughs) that. I just think it's well worth it. Also important to note that we are not going to be finished after the end of this review of the Stand series. There will be more to come. So, yes, on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, if you could get a rate and review to continue to show people where they can find us and more content in the future, that would be really helpful.
1: And while you're at it, go ahead and follow us on Twitter, at ckc podcast, where every week we ask you, who is your MVS? Who took the most valuable stand this episode? This time we had... Dana Juergens, spelled incorrectly, (laughs) Glenn Bateman, Franny Goldsmith, and Harold Lauder. Coming in at last place with 0% is Franny Goldsmith.
2: Oh, poor Fran. Here's the thing. I've heard other podcasts discuss it too. And I think particularly if you have the book knowledge, this was another big one for Harold and Franny, two key figures in the episode. And there was more Franny development than there ever has been before. She's taking the time to record everything that's going on here. Not just for her child, but I think that's going to be important, a thing to have for later. She is playing a role in this committee this time around. It might be quiet and not as easily recognizable, but things like telling Larry, it's your time. Get up there, man. Noticing where the strengths are. Agreeing that they should be united on the Tom decision. Standing up to Harold, forging the relationship with Stu. I'm getting more of an understanding of who she is. And I hope that's just the beginning. But if not, it's better than the way I have felt about this character for the last couple of episodes. Second place is tied with 28.6% between Glenn and Harold.
1: There's still 23 hours left on the poll, so this might change a little bit.
2: I think this shows what a fan favorite Glenn is because he didn't do too much this episode, in fairness. While well, I love him, he calmed Harold down. He brought him over to this side. And he did have some of that impact we were looking for behind the scenes on the committee. Yes. But I think that was a real joint effort. It wasn't like... Pun intended. The book where it's all Glenn. This is what we got to do. This is what to look for. Like you said, it was everyone coming together there. He's just fun.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, Harold is making a really big impact. Although he wasn't the one that pulled the trigger, it was his plan to get these explosives... It was his episode where we're watching him firsthand and his, I guess you would say, change into full evil. Harold is going to be the one to ruin this group.
2: Like you said, it's sad because we saw how things could have been if Harold had decided to really be part of this if he had been on the committee, if he'd been using his talents for good, even the continuing to find the signs and see how he's led people on this journey to Boulder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you again, feel that empathy. I think they're doing a good job of combining that in here, how Harold got to this place. What happened with him and Garvey during the zoo scene was awful. Yeah. Even on somebody as bad as Harold, you would never wish something like that. Uh I mean, I don't want to see that done to anybody. No wonder he's defensive and bristly in the later conversation with Stu and Glenn. It's been proven to him. He thought this was all faded and there was a bigger purpose that he was going to get to be something more. And then Franny rejected him. And now look what just happened to him with the zoo. So forget you and this religion and this prophecy. I I don't buy any of it. We understand why he's reacting that way.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: And when somebody does take a softer hand with him like Glenn, he manages to bring him over and it's okay. I don't know. I think they're doing a great job of continuing to make him a complex character, even while we see where the future's leading, Harold.
1: Yeah, I agree. Unfortunately, he doesn't see that he has become somebody of value. He's a valuable asset to this crew. He's a good friend now of Teddy. People depend on him, Mm. especially Teddy, with what they're doing. And then first place... With 42.9% is Dana Jurgens, New character. She's the one that took down Garvey with passion. And she took this new role as a spy mm-hmm. with conviction and authority.
2: Imagine after everything she's been through, I'd get to Boulder and say, Okay, I've done enough. It's my chance to relax and be safe for a little while. She is an incredibly strong and impressive character.
1: Moving on to our Clatcher's comments. Brian said... Dana gets my vote as a proxy for Tom. Anyone going to Vegas deserves it this episode. And Tom's character's growth is pretty big this episode. M-O-O-N spells vote for Tom.
2: (laughs) Since Tom wasn't on the poll, he's saying. That's cute.
1: Yeah, I wanted to put Tom because he pulled at my emotional strings. And I can agree with you. Tom is awesome.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but I think more so it's the pairing. This from E-Man, the Elder Millennial. Tom and Nick would get my vote. I love their relationship in this episode. I teared up when I saw their joy and hug after escaping Psycho Girl, Julie. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite episode yet. I'm starting to be less critical of the flashbacks as long as they keep doing them this well. Agreed. And I love when characters have to make these terrible selfless choices for the good of others. The evil trucker, wow, that was so intense. I despise Harold more every episode, and I also started tearing up when they were interviewing Tom when he said, run, if more than one, if one, kill. Yeah, you know, it's interesting in the 94 when they're telling him this and they get to the part of kill, he goes, and you could see that he's going, okay. But this is where you get that feeling. They're not really brainwashing him. And that's the whole idea of hypnotism, right? Is that you can't get somebody to do something that they wouldn't otherwise. Mm. They can tell him, he can say yes, but I think if the point comes to it, Tom's not going to kill anyone because that's just not in his nature.
1: Self-defense, I could see it.
2: Maybe. I think he's going to sooner try to hide, try to run. Yeah, that's but not- he's so
1: big that maybe, like, self-defense, he's not trying to kill him, but just by mistake, he ends up doing it.
2: I could see that. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think just because they tell him that's what he should do, that's what Tom's going to do.
0: What's up? This is E-Man again. I uh, just was leaving a message, and then I was coming upon a police officer with my phone up to my earballs, so I thought I should not maybe try again. But, uh, anyway, <laughs> I was saying, this is definitely my favorite episode. My logs! So good. And, uh, especially, like, stuff with Tom and Nick. Good friendship there. They hug in. And, uh, I mean, at the escape from the crazy lady, that whole scene. Another part that really got me was when they're interviewing Tom and just how crazy he was. And, like, when he's saying that, yeah, if there's more than one, I run. If there's one, I kill. Um, just the, like I was saying in my last voicemail, I was really liking the flashbacks this time. I think they're doing it right, uh, which I was a little hesitant about all the flashbacks and them trying to pack into one season, which, uh, I, I think Pistol Paserino was saying that, you know, if you have three seasons, you cover the time periods or whatever, but it's, you know, it's an artistic choice and I think it's working now because, because the flashbacks were just so good this season. I mean, this episode is uh, definitely my favorite, and I'm, I'm, I am have a feeling they're just going to keep going better and have a good ending, hopefully. I'm glad I don't know that because I have actually not read or seen this story before. Oh, yeah, that scene of the trucker. Oh, my word. Was that just the craziest scene ever? So intense. Harold looked awful in that. Just what a fancy. Anyway, look forward to the podcast this week. This round is on me.
2: That was... Really great because pretty much summarizing a lot of what we said on our general thoughts of the episode and his imitation of Brad William Henke, (laughs) perfect. He sounded just like him. (laughs) I agree with everything, and I too am really happy at the way the flashbacks are now being utilized here. It gives me a lot more hope that maybe we were right about the first couple episodes being introductory and now them bringing us closer to the present timeline and just using them perhaps sparingly from here on out to fill in pieces we were missing. If they go that direction, I think I'm going to continue to really love this adaptation. So, Jason, who is your MBS?
1: You know what, Chris? I wanted to go Dana because she did make a big impact. If it wasn't for her, they might have all died. But I'm going to go Harold because he's manipulating the group in Toto. Yes. And... Also, he's devising this plan that could blow up in our face. Mm -hmm. He's someone to reckon with. He's he's a problem. And no one sees it, which makes it even worse.
2: I agree. I'm so happy you picked Harold because looking back, I realized we hadn't given an MBS to him yet, which is kind of crazy. And it also makes me feel better about saying I'm going to go with Dana.
1: I was so close to going with I, I
2: really too. love the way they're portraying her here, how you get right to the essence of her. They did a lot of that this time around. We don't need much. It's just these couple of scenes, and I would love if there are more, but it's, it's doing a lot of the lifting to get us to where we understand Nick and Tom, Julie, mm-hmm. Dana, and hopefully we'll get a lot more of that in the future.
1: Thank you, Clatchers, for voting. I know we've asked you to do a few things, but if you could do one more thing for us, it takes one click. Retweet when we put up a poll so that we can get more people voting. You know, your followers know you well. Hopefully some of them are watching the show alongside you. So if you retweet it, they'll see it on their timeline and they can put in their vote. It just adds to the digital water cooler.
2: And that's going to do it for this episode except for our spoiler section. So if you are afraid of that, we'll see you next time when we review episode five. For those of you still here, we are in the spoilers because I am in the way of knowing things. This time, a little more about Julie and Glenn's ideas on society. We mentioned we were going to give you the description of Julie from the books, which I adore, and it goes on for pages. But one key paragraph I pulled out where Nick is really starting to get an idea of her, he says she told him a great deal more in the following hour. And Nick found it impossible to separate the truth from the lies or the wish fulfillment. She might have been waiting for someone like him who could never interrupt the endless flow of her monologue all her life. Nick's eyes got tired just watching her lips push out the shape of the words. But if his eyes wandered for more than just a moment to check on Tom, her hand would touch his cheek, quickly bringing his eyes back to her mouth. He was annoyed with her at first, then bored with her. In the space of an hour, incredibly, he found himself wishing he had never found her in the first place. When the flow of words began to dry up a little, she wanted to do it again. When Nick shook his head, she said, maybe I don't want to go with you after all. Nick shrugged. Dummy, 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 she yelled with sudden viciousness. Her eyes shone with spite. Then she smiled. I didn't mean that. I was just kidding. Nick looked at her expressionless. There was something in her that he very much did not like. Some restless instability. And it's, it's just a highlight of the selfishness, the self-absorbedness. She's talking about her life for a half an hour. And if Nick even tries to check because he's left Tom outside to go get the Pepto-Bismol, he's been gone forever, she pulls his face back so that he is seeing, because he's a lip reader, what she's saying every second of the time. And how vicious she turns in a half a second when he says, I don't want to have sex again. We got things to do. She's unstable and terrifying.
1: She's a child in a grown person's body.
2: Yeah, but one that's going to pick up a shotgun and shoot you if you say, we don't need you along with us. She's trouble. We also talked about Glenn's musings on society, how we see a bit of him behind the scenes here helping the committee, but it's really a joint effort. We get a lot more of his thoughts from the books, especially initially when him and Stu are together. And Stu is asking, well, you seem to know a lot. How do you think this whole thing is going to go down? So he says to Stu, we may actually finish the job of destroying our species. Not right away, because we're all too scattered. But man is a gregarious social animal, and eventually we'll get back together, if only so we can tell each other stories about how we survived the Great Plague of 1990. Most of these societies that form up are apt to be primitive dictatorships, A few may be enlightened, democratic communities, and I'll tell you exactly what the necessary requirement for that is in the late 90s. A community with enough technical people in it to get the lights back on. At that point, he goes off on this sidebar to tell us about two hypothetical communities. One that has someone in it who has the capability to do that, and one who doesn't, headed into this long winter and what could happen between those two communities. He goes on to say, In the post-flu world, technological know-how is going to replace gold as the perfect medium of exchange. In those terms, society A is rich and society B is poor. The new societies that will arise will have technology as their cornerstone because we're hooked. They won't remember or won't choose to remember the corner we painted ourselves into, the dirty rivers, the hole in the ozone layer, the atomic bomb, the pollution. All they'll remember is that once upon a time, they could keep warm at night without expending too much effort. And so he sees that as the beginning of the end, knowing that's how societies will start to rebuild. But this comparison of one who has and the other who doesn't, he says, you know, what will happen when it's getting closer to winter and B doesn't have any means to do that? And Stu very innocently says, well, A, will send someone to help, right? He'll send them up to B to help. Glenn's like, no, they won't do that. What if B keeps this man hostage and doesn't let him go? How are they to know what would happen to him? They're going to let B fend for themselves. And he's like, oh, they will? Then what will happen? Well, maybe B will get their hands on some weapons and turn around and go and storm society, A, so they can take this man, take their technology. It's the whole give me one man and I'll show you a saint speech, but extended to its logical conclusion of where things will go once people start to group back up and what they need to be afraid of when they start to rebuild their own society in Boulder.
1: It's very dark, but it's very reasonable. If history can tell you this has happened very many times in our society, unfortunately, it's the truth about human nature. The people who have want to keep. The people who don't have want to get.
2: And they'll do whatever it takes to get. And, you know, as he keeps saying, plus... All these toys are lying around waiting to be picked up. Yeah, That's the danger in this apocalyptic scenario. All that stuff is still there. And I think this is apropos, considering the very first community gathering thing we've seen is them turning the power back on. So I hope we'll get more tidbits from Glenn in the adaptation, but in case we don't, it's just fun to see what his views on what's to come entail. Absolutely. And next time, we know episode five will be titled Suspicious Minds. Hopefully, the title will make a little more sense than this last one has. I don't really know what Suspicious Minds means. Obviously, there's going to be more about Harold and Nadine, right?
1: Suspicious about where Teddy is.
2: Oh, And what happened to him. Or the three spies. We just said, surely people will notice he's gone. Well, surely won't they notice?
1: Or Suspicious in Minds in Vegas.
2: Oh, could be. Maybe
1: next episode, we don't even see Boulder. It's all about
2: Vegas. We've been saying we have to get to Vegas soon, Mm -hmm. right? And we still haven't been introduced to the trash can man. So maybe that is next time.
1: And when are you going to say on the podcast what you say to me after every episode? When are we going to see Alexander naked? Don't you say that? (laughs) Okay.
2: (laughs) I have never said that. Although if they feel like showing it to us, I'm not going to (laughs) argue. Well, I think that does it for House of the Dead. And until next week. You come see me anytime.
0: Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast.
1: This round is on me.